0: ephesians today ephesians is part of a group of letters that are called the prison epistles they're called the prison epistles because these are to teach you how to go to prison like paul no they're called the prison epistles uh, anybody know which ones are the prison epistles okay these are the letters he wrote from prison. Colossians? Colossians, e- Colossians and Philippians. Okay. First and second Thessalonians? No. Nope. No? Okay. Uh, Corinthians. Corinthians? Oh. oh. The- Ephesians. Ephesians okay. number three. Okay. So we have Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians, and there's one more letter. Canonically, you're very close. It's very close to Hebrews in the order of the Bible. And it's not James. uh, um, uh, um, Philemon. Philemon. I remembered these by the little acronym PECP, P-E-C-P. Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon. PECP. Those are the four that are called the prison epistles. They were all written while Paul was in prison. How do we know he's in prison? Go grab your Bible, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. Paul refers to himself. He says, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, he calls himself a prisoner. He does it again, chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, he refers to himself again in chapter 6, verse 20 for which I am an ambassador in chains. He refers to himself as being in chains. Flip over to Philippians. Philippians chapter 1. I just want to show you in all of these epistles that he refers to himself as being a prisoner, that he's in prison, verse 13, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word without fear. Verse 17. The former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition rather than pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. So, multiple times in Philippians, he refers to himself as being a prisoner. Colossians chapter uh, 4, verse 18. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. Philemon. In Philemon, that tiny little book that you always skip over right before Hebrews. Philemon, verse 1. Would somebody read that? Paul, the of Christ, he to, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Leah, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow showroom. He refers to himself as what? A prisoner. Go down to verse 9. Yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul, the aged and now also a prisoner of Christ. Verse 13. Whom I wish to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment in the gospel. So multiple times throughout all four letters, Paul refers to himself as being a prisoner And these prison epistles, three of them, come next in our order of books. We finished 2 Corinthians, we did Galatians, and now we're in Ephesians. There is another book that was written while Paul was in prison that is not considered part of the prison epistles. Anybody know what book that is? Prison epistles, Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. What other book was written while Paul was in prison? No? Both of you are close as far as canonical order. It was at the end of his life. Oh, uh, Second Timothy. Timothy. Second Timothy was also written while he was in prison. But it's not considered part of the prison epistles. And the reason for that is because it was written much later. The four that we're talking about right now are, were all written about the same time in the same imprisonment. Second Timothy was written well after this towards the end of his life and i want to show you that all four of these are connected together the first three prison epistles seem to be delivered by the same guy tychicus tychicus was a close associate of paul at the end of ephesians if you go to ephesians chapter 6 tychicus shows up verse 21 but that you also may know about my circumstance, how I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, who will make everything known to you. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, so that you may know about us and that he may comfort your hearts. It seems that Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians and then handed it to Tychicus and said, Would you take this to them? And he sends him to the Ephesians. In Colossians 4. Verse 7, Tychicus shows up again. As to all of my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord, will bring you information. For I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. And so we have another time. Tychicus is the delivery man. He's the, the mailman. Tychicus is also joined by another guy. Onesimus, would you read verse 9? And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your your number, they will inform you about the whole situation here. Onesimus comes up in another book. Yes. Onesimus is the slave that ran away from his master. His master's name was Philemon. And Paul writes a letter to Philemon and says... Forgive him for running away. Receive him back as a brother in Christ. And he sends Onesimus back to Philemon. Notice Philemon 1 and 2. Let me get over there. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Ophia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Jump down to verse 10. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useless, useful, both to you and to me. What's the point here? The point is all of these letters are connected by the ministry of, by the the involvement of these men. Onesimus, Philemon, Tychicus, these are all working together. These letters are also connected by the presence of Timothy. Philippians 1.1, 1, 1, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ. Philippians 2.19, but I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you shortly so that I may be encouraged when I learn of his condition. Paul writes to the Philippians. He sends the letter, yeah, he sends the letter to the Philippians and says, I hope, I can eventually send Timothy to you, but I can't send him now. Tychicus, Timothy, Onesimus, Philemon, all four of these guys show up in all of these letters. And their presence indicates that all of these letters were written about the same time. The first three, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon, were all written about the same time, and they were all dispatched and sent by Tychicus, and he delivered them. Later, towards the end of Paul's imprisonment, Philippians is written and sent by another person. There's another guy that shows up. That's the guy named Luke. Everybody know who Luke is? We've talked about Luke. Luke shows up in Acts 20, verse 4. Luke is mentioned along with Tychicus as accompanying Paul to Macedonia. Both of them were with Paul. When Paul was in Philippi, according to Acts 20, verse 6. And Luke was known to the church in Colossae. Colossians 4 14, Luke, the beloved physician, sends you greetings and also Demas. And when Paul writes to Philemon, he writes to Philemon and he mentions Luke in Philemon 24. So these letters are connected by being written about at the same time. They all refer to Paul being in prison. And the same people appear in all four letters. So what do we know about where Paul is when he writes these letters? Paul was in prison, correct? Paul was in prison, but which imprisonment? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, some people say it's in Rome, and that's the most obvious answer. That comes out of Philippians 1, verse 13. So that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. Anybody know what the Praetorian Guard is? The elite, special, protective military group for Caesar. Yeah, they were responsible for protecting Caesar, and they went wherever he went. Now, that's not to say that there were not elements of the Praetorian Guard in other places. And some look at this and say, well, look, he's talking about the Praetorian Guard. The Praetorian Guard would have been present in Caesarea when Paul was imprisoned. They come to that because of Mark fifteen sixteen. The soldiers took him away into the palace, that is, the praetorium, and they call together the whole Roman cohort that's speaking of Jesus' crucifixion. And they say, well, look, the praetorian guard is there. So clearly Caesarea has a praetorian guard. Acts 23, verse 35, the praetorian guard shows up. He said, I will give you a hearing after your accusers arrive also, giving orders for him to be kept in Herod's praetorium would be where the praetorian guard would stay. So they say, well look, praetorian guard is in Caesarea. So therefore when Paul wrote the prison epistles, he was imprisoned in Caesarea. Remember, Paul spent 2 years in imprisonment waiting to be sent to Rome. And they say that that proves that's where he was when he wrote the letter. Problem with this. First problem Paul was in prison at the end of the book of Acts. And he appealed to Caesar. And he appealed to Caesar so he can go and stand trial before Caesar. So he knew how his imprisonment in Caesarea would end. His imprisonment in Caesarea would end with him being in chains, being put on a boat, and being sent to Rome. But when he writes the book of Philippians... It doesn't seem like Paul really knows how it's going to turn out. He's hopeful it's going to turn out a certain way, but it doesn't seem like he really knows. Philippians 1:20, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul doesn't know how this imprisonment is going to end at the end of his imprisonment in Caesarea, he's certain of how it's going to end. Now, he was hopeful that he would be, survive. And if you read the rest of the Philippians, it seems like he was confident he was going to survive. But there was still that doubt in his mind. But let's go back to that Praetorian guard issue. We read Philippians 1.13, where he's talking about the Praetorian guard. But I want you to notice in verse 13... Notice it says the whole Praetorian Guard. He's not talking about a detachment, a small group of them. He's talking about the entire Praetorian Guard. And the only way the entire Praetorian Guard would know of his imprisonment and that he would know all of them know is if he's in Rome where the Praetorian Guard is stationed. Go to the end of Philippians Philippians 4, verse 22. All the saints greet you, especially those of what? Caesar's household. Caesar's household is not in Caesarea. Edmund Hebert. The reference to Caesar's household cannot, without much straining of language and facts, be made to suit Caesarea. It would, yeah. He's imprisoned for part of it. He's in in a house prison, according to the end of Acts. He's, He's staying in a home, and he's got a guard with him. And for the end of that imprisonment, they move him to the Praetorian Guard, and they imprison him there. And this would have been very close to the palace, so that way he can get to Caesar when Caesar calls him. News of Paul's imprisonment, likely news of Paul's evangelism, was spreading throughout the Praetorian Guard. Everybody knew who Paul was. And many of them had to guard him and likely heard the gospel multiple times from him. I want to hear that gospel presentation, by the way. This is the imprisonment that you find at the end of the book of Acts. When you get to the end of the book of Acts and you see Paul's prison in Rome and the book kind of ends there, that's the imprisonment we're referring to here. And Philippians must be the final letter. It has to be the last book written because it's the book where he seems like he's expecting his trial to occur any day now. He's expecting to stand before Caesar imminently. Philippians two nineteen, he says he hopes to be able to send Timothy. He's going to hold Timothy back until he knows the results of his trial. Philippians 2, verse 23, Therefore I hope to send him immediately, as soon as I see how things go with me. As soon as I get the results of my trial, Timothy's going to be on his way to let you know what happened. Verse 24, And I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. There's that expectation. I'm going to get out of this. I'm going to survive this. And as soon as Paul knows the outcome of his case, Timothy's going to be on his way. And then as soon as he can, Paul will be on his way to Philippi just as quickly. You don't find that same expectation in the other epistles. The other epistles don't make any mention of his release or the expectation that he's going to be released. So we have to say that Philippians was likely written last. Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon were written together. We don't know the order. If you read some people, they'll say, well, this book must have been written first. This book must. We don't actually know which one was written first, which one was written second. They were carried by Tychicus to the church. Paul's then moved into the prison. We covered that too. See, Who does he send the letter to the Philippians with? He sends it with Epaphroditus. Philippians 2.25, But I thought it was necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger. So when he writes Philippians, he hands it to Epaphroditus and he takes it on. Okay. Everybody have a basic idea of the prison epistles? Okay. Let's go to the book of Ephesians now. Let's actually get to what we're here for. And we're going to um, start with the most obvious one. But like we talked about last week with Galatians, it's also one that's debated. (coughs) Who is the author of the book of Ephesians? Yeah. Paul. An apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of the Gentiles. You would think this would be real easy. And then the liberals show up. And they call into question Paul's authorship. Even though Paul clearly says who he is. And if you accept the liberal position that Paul didn't write the book of Ephesians, you essentially have to say that the author of this book was lying. Now, why is that a problem? If you can't mm-hmm. trust the authorship, how are you going to trust what he says? Yeah, if he can't even tell you his real name, why would you believe anything else he says? What does that do to your doctrine of inspiration if the author is lying and the book is inspired by God? They don't like something in the book. Oh, just to just it something. That's the way I would take it. Liberal, liberal theologians have to support their liberal theology, and some books just don't work out so well for them. All the internal evidence says it was written by Paul. You have to deny what the book says in order to say it wasn't written by Paul. But it's not just the internal evidence. The historical evidence points to Paul's authorship. Louis Burkhoff, the historical evidence for the Pauline authorship of the epistle is exceptionally strong. Robert Gramacchi gives a few of the names of the people who identified this book as being written by Paul. Some of those who stated this conclusion that Paul is the author, Ignatius, Polycarp, Irenaeus, Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, Marcion, Clement of Rome, Ignatius, and Hippolytus. Ephesians was also listed with the Muratorian canon. Remember, the Muratorian canon was that collection of books around 170 AD that contained most of the New Testament. And Marcion was the heretic who cut out a whole bunch of books out of the Bible. Even the heretics of the second century are saying this was written by Paul. And the attacks on the authorship, Paul's authorship here, aren't old. They're new. Donald Guthrie. This epistle had been regarded as a genuine epistle of Paul until the 19th century. Very recent. When you hear someone say Paul didn't write Ephesians, that's not an ancient belief. That's where the German liberals showed up and used higher criticism to attack it. There is no reason to reject Paul's authorship of this book, internally or externally. Okay, so Paul wrote the book of Ephesians. Next controversy. <laughs> Ephesians 1.1 Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Who is Paul writing to is the next controversy. This one has more internal support for controversy than the last controversy. Paul's authorship is pretty straightforward. Who he's writing to is actually a good question. You see in verse 1, it says, two who are at Ephesus. There's a textual variant here. At Ephesus is not in some manuscripts. Uh, That's not to say that it never appears. Uh, Louis Burkhoff, the words in Ephesus, they are indeed found in in all the extant manuscripts, with the exception of three. The important manuscripts, Aleph, that would be Sinaiticus, uh, Codex B, which is Vaticanus, and Codex 67. A codex, remember, is the ancient version of a book. They take manuscripts, stack them together, and bind them. These are the three big codices that we have. In all of these, there's a missing phrase in Ephesus. Now, I'm going to go geeky on you for a minute, but just work with me, okay? This is the text... Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, through the will of God, to the saints who are and faithful in Christ Jesus. That's how it literally reads in these in these codices. You have a verb, who are, and then there's no object that follows it. There's no preposition that follows it. Who are in, there's nothing there. These codices, essentially, the blank isn't actually here. It's, there's no space. But I, I leave the blank there just so you can see it. Think it's just a error. It could be. It could be a scribal error. But this is where people will say, well, wait a minute. These main, these main codices don't have this text. So what Paul has done here is he's left a blank, essentially, because the letter is supposed to be read to various churches. And they say this was a circular letter intended to be passed around to all these different churches. Paul wrote it, and you're to take this letter, and you're to go to the Ephesians, and the Colossians, and the Laodiceans, and you are to read this letter. But the early church viewed this as being from Paul. Not from Paul being to the Ephesians. Irenaeus from the 2nd century cited Ephesians 5.30 as being part of the epistle to the Ephesians. Clement of Alexandria from the 3rd century said it was a letter to the Ephesians. But modern scholars said it was sent to a group of churches in the same area. And that's where this blank spot becomes relevant. Because what they say is, look, The letter is supposed to be read in the church. And so when I'm reading Paul and an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are, I'm in Bernie, who are in Bernie and faithful in Christ. And Paul's leaving a blank spot so that they can just fill in the city they're in. If the manuscript who read, who are in, who are, and then they'd have a preposition over here, in, that would make a lot of sense. Because Paul would be clearly indicating, I'm going to put a preposition to the saints who are in, and faithful. That would make perfect sense, and would lend support to their argument. The problem is, there's no preposition there. The author just assumes that the audience knows who he's writing to. Second problem. If it was designed for a group of churches, if Paul wrote this letter for a group of churches, why not include some kind of general greeting to all of the churches in that area? Which is what he did in Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4, verse 15 Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea, and also Nympha, and the church that is in her house. I'm writing to the Colossians, but I want you to greet those who are in Laodicea. Verse 16, When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. There, Paul clearly intended his letter to be passed on to other churches, and he greeted those churches in the letter. But in the book of Ephesians, you don't have any such greeting. You don't have a statement that says you are to pass this letter on. You are to read this in front of other churches. Now, I mentioned that only three manuscripts or three codices are missing this statement. The other manuscripts do have the statement. to the in Ephesus, the saints who are in Ephesus. The brackets, if you ever see brackets in there, it's just saying that they don't think that was part of the original. This, this could be not part of the original. Most manuscripts have in Ephesus. But I think the strongest evidence is not this little phrase, in Ephesus. The strongest evidence is, comes from another place. Every manuscript that we have, every codex that we have of this book has the same title. Donald Guthrie. Moreover, the title to the Ephesians attached to all the Greek manuscripts reflects a tradition current in the time in spite of the doubt about the reading of first of chapter 1 verse 1. Every single manuscript that we have in Greek says to the ephesians I'll show you at least one of them this is p46 you can actually see the variant here Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus through the will of God uh where is it to the saints who are, there's your verb, and nothing there. The verb is there, the conjunction is there, no proposition, no statement to the Ephesians. So you can actually see it's missing out of this one. But I want you to look at the title. To the Ephesians. There's the E that would make the F sound, that's like our PH. To the Ephesians. Every Greek manuscript has it. The guy who copied this, whoever he is, believed that this was a letter to the Ephesians. And every manuscript we have has the exact same title. Who was Paul writing to? A collection of churches? He was writing to the Ephesians. Is that clear as mud? Okay. Huh? Huh? Clear mud, good, okay. Well, you can study more on that if you'd like. Um, There's plenty of, there's a whole bunch of ink spilled on a whole bunch of pages on that issue. So let's talk a a minute about the church at Ephesus. The church was located on the shore of Asia Minor. Uh, There's Asia Minor. Ephesus is right here. If you want to see where that is it's at the it was located at the river of the mouth uh, of the at the mouth of the river caester approximately 300 miles from corinth corinth is over here and it's directly across from corinth at one time ephesus was actually on the coast it was a coastal city but because of the mouth of the river and because of how sediments kind of worked As time went by, it moved further and further inland, or actually the shore moved further and further away. And now it sits somewhere around, by the time of Paul's day, it was sat about three miles from the coast. And it was a major port. It was a city of a lot of commerce. A lot of people would travel in and out of that city. And its commerce rivaled the cities of Antioch and Alexandria in Egypt. It would eventually become a part of the Roman Empire, and it was considered a free city. Anybody know what that means when we say it's a free city? That is, the Roman government, while they still exercise control over it, they allowed the local population to govern themselves, and they have their own government. Uh, Acts 19.38 talks about the people sitting in the council at the gates. It was also known for its architecture. The primary attraction was the temple of Artemis. Artemis was the name given by the Greeks. The Romans referred to this god as Diana. Here's the temple. It's beautiful, isn't it? Oh, okay, that's what remains of the temple. That's what's left. Uh, The temple was eventually destroyed. Um, Here's a modern rendering of what it would have looked like. It was 340 feet 43 feet long, 164 feet wide. It was surrounded by more than 100 columns that extended 60 feet into the air. 36 of them were highly decorated with carvings all the way around them. Inside the temple, there was a shrine to the god of Artemis. Here's a bronze figure of Artemis. This is not my rendering, this is from Lagos. In Acts 19, we can actually learn something about Artemis. And remember the story of Demetrius? Demetrius was a silversmith in Ephesus. And Paul comes in and starts preaching against these fake gods. And Demetrius gets a little upset. He gets upset because Paul is out there preaching how these are fake gods and they don't do anything and they're they're mute, they can't talk. And Demetrius is like, hey man, you're killing my business. (laughs) <laughs> Stop it! And he stirs up a crowd, and they revolt against him. He, this is what he would make. Little figurines like this of Artemis. So people can have their little idol and go in to their home and worship Artemis. But it was this temple that was the center of the attraction in Ephesus. People would come. It was considered one of the great wonders of the world, the Temple of Artemis. And they took great pride in In this temple. Eventually, that temple would be destroyed in 262 AD by the Goths. They came in and ransacked it and destroyed it. Behind the shrine in the temple, there was a vault. There was a bank where they would store the treasure and the money. The temple was eventually destroyed, it was never rebuilt. But that was a big part of the life of the Ephesians, was this temple of Artemis. So what do we know about the church in Ephesus? Who established it? Well, in Acts 2.9, we find out that people from Asia, including from Ephesus, were at the day of Pentecost. And likely converted. Just like we saw in Acts 2, where people from Rome were in Jerusalem at the day of Pentecost. And some would say, well, those people went back and they established the church. The the problem is we don't have any evidence that they went back. There's no biblical evidence that they went back. And there's certainly no biblical evidence that they established the church. We do know that Paul stopped at Ephesus on his second missionary journey. Acts 18, verse 18. Paul, having remained many days longer, that would be at Corinth, Took leave of the brethren, put out to sea for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. In uh, Kincrae, he had his hair cut for he was keeping a vow. They came to Ephesus, and he left them there. Now he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer time, he did not consent, but taking leave of them and saying, I will return to you again if God wills, he set sail from Ephesus. So Paul stops on a second missionary journey. He spends a little bit of time speaking to the Jews there at Ephesus, and then he leaves, and he leaves Priscilla and Aquila behind. Acts 24 through 26, Apollos goes to Ephesus. Anybody know what happens to Apollos when he gets to Ephesus? He meets Priscilla and Aquila, and they instruct him in the better way on how to do baptism correctly. At some point, Apollos wants to be a missionary to Achaia. And so the brethren there, Acts 18, verse 27, the brothers send letters with Apollos. So here you have have no mention of Paul establishing a church, but you have the brethren there who are now functioning as a church, and they are sending a missionary out with letters. This indicates there was at least a group of believers in Ephesus. Paul would return to Ephesus on his third missionary journey. And there's an interesting statement in Acts 19. Paul arrives, Acts 19, verse 1, and it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. Notice it doesn't say Paul went to Ephesus and went back to the church he established. He found some disciples. Believers. And the word there for found, you know what it means? He found them. He didn't know they were there. It's to either go and search for something that you don't know where it is, or to stumble across something that you didn't know was there. He literally found them. And again, you can go and read the commentaries. There's a whole bunch of ink that's been spilled where these true believers were these false converts, and the reason they say that is because Paul asked them, have you received the Spirit? And they said, what are you talking about? So if they're true believers, why why don't they have the Spirit? Suffice it to say that these are people who at least profess to be believers, which means they've had some kind of acquaintance with the Christian faith. They have some acquaintance and knowledge of who Christ is in the gospel. Some of them could have been. How did this happen? Where did they learn it from? Was it Priscilla and Aquila? Could be. We don't actually know who founded this church. But Paul arrives on his third missionary journey, and he stays there for three years. Acts 19, verse 8, And he enters the synagogue and continues speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some of them were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus." This took place for two years. Now, Tyrannus was the guy who was a converted Jew. He lived right next door to the synagogue. So Paul goes into the synagogue, he starts preaching. They're like, look, Paul, we don't want to hear this. And so Paul's like, okay, cool and he goes next door and sets up shop next door and continues preaching for two years. Talk about some guts. And he did that for two years. Eventually, he ran into more opposition from guys like Demetrius, and that opposition led to him leaving. Acts 20, verse 31, Therefore be on the alert, remembering that night and day, for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. Ephesus had three years of apostolic ministry. Three years of Paul teaching and preaching. So what was the composition of this church? What were the people there like? Acts 19.8, we saw that he was in the synagogue, so there must have been some Jews in Ephesus. Being that Paul ran into a lot of this, and this is mentioned quite a bit, you would have to conclude that a good portion of these are Gentile believers. When Paul leaves, he leaves a fully established church in Ephesus. Acts 20, verse 17. From Miletus, he sent letters to Ephesus and called him the elders of the church. They had a fully established church. Paul, on his third missionary journey, left Timothy at Ephesus to help contend with the false teachers. First Timothy 1, verse 3, As I urge you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. This is not a church that was perfect. Three years of apostolic teaching, and he has to leave someone behind to keep the false teachers out. In fact, in Acts 20, Paul warns the elders to watch out for false prophets and false teachers. He calls them savage wolves who will come in, not sparing the flock. Church history indicates that the Apostle John eventually took up residence there in Ephesus. It was also the church at Ephesus that Jesus writes to in the book of Revelation. Revelation 2-2, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance, that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. So Jesus actually commends the church at Ephesus. This is by the late 90s. And apparently the church had done exactly what Paul admonished them to do. But Jesus did have a critique for them. You guys remember the critique of the church of Ephesus? That was the Laodiceans. Yes. You have left your first love. By the time John writes in the 90s, the fire and the passion of the church of Ephesus had died. And they had entered into a spiritual malaise. And he says, go back to what you were doing before. And that brings us to our purpose. Why did Paul write to the Ephesians? This is from Dr. Essex, basic purpose statement. Gentile Christians were shown their place in the purpose of God for the church and urged to show the outworking of their call in their conduct. Paul starts, the first three chapters are what? Doctrine. Here's what God has done for you. The next four chapters is all about here's what you need to be doing right and he says Ephesians 3 1 he says he's writing to Gentiles he actually calls them Gentiles in chapter 2 he reminds them that as Gentiles they were at one time separated from the promises of God they had no hope of salvation they were far off chapter 2 verse 11 So, I want to read chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, You who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now, you used to be far off. If he's writing to Jews, that can't be possible. He has to be writing to Gentiles. He calls them Gentiles. And now, because of what Christ has done, they are heirs and fellow heirs with Christ. Uh, Ephesians 3, verse 6. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel paul expands on the promises in chapters 1 and 2 and explains how god sovereignly and unilaterally saves the gentiles chapter 1 verse 3 he says you're blessed with all the spiritual blessings of heaven verse 4 they've been chosen before the foundation of the world verse 5 they've been predestined for adoption to be sons of God, to be children of God. Verse 7, he says, you are redeemed by the blood of Christ. Verse 11, you've obtained an inheritance. Verse 13, all of this was through the hearing of the gospel. When they heard the gospel, they believed the gospel, and then they were sealed by the Spirit. Verse 14 is a cool verse. He says the Holy Spirit was the down payment. He's the earnest money to prove that the promises will come true. Chapter 2, he reminds them of what they used to be. You were dead. You were following after Satan. That's verses 1 through 3. Verses 4 through 10, you've been made alive with Christ. You've been saved by grace through faith. And he goes through the rest of chapter 2 and 3 to finish out the theology. Note chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore I, whenever you see therefore, ask the question, what's the therefore, therefore? The implication. Because of everything that I've already said, this is how you should walk. This is how you should be living. The new life in Christ comes with a calling for new living. Verse 17 of chapter 4. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. Chapter 4, verses 20 through 32, he talks about repentance. You'll see that in the sermon today. Chapter 5, he tells them they are to walk in love. Chapter 5, verse 2. And walk in love. He tells them to be imitators of God as they walk in love. He reminds them in chapter 1, verse 4, you have been predestined in love. Chapter 2, verse 4, they have been saved because of God's love. Chapter 3, verse 17, they are to be rooted and grounded in love. Everything they do should stem and flow from love. Chapter 3, verse 19, I'm moving quickly because of time here. Chapter 3, verse 19, he prays that they would know the full breadth, length, and depth of the love of Christ. Chapter 4, verse 15, they are to speak the truth in love. They have a new identity. They're supposed to walk differently. And this new identity is they are part of the church. Paul has some really high ecclesiology. He discusses the church, not the local body. He doesn't talk to the Ephesians about, here's your local body, and here's what it is. He describes the church in the universal sense. The church is the body of Christ. And in chapter 1, verse 22, he says, You're the fullness of Him. That is, you are the complement of Him. Through the church, God manifests His glory. The church is here to manifest the glory of Christ to others. But who? Who is the church manifesting the glory of Christ to? Is that all? That's certainly true. Good answer. Chapter 3, verse 10. So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to who? To the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. The church is to manifest the glory and the wisdom of God, not just to the world, but to angels and to demons. Manifold here refers to the many sided the diversified wisdom of God. That's the job of the church. That's why you should be living a new life. Chapter 5, he explains the relationship of Christ and the church in the form of marriage. For the sake of time, I'm not going to go into that today. Let's get to the interpretive issues. There's only two of them. We've already talked about this one. Destination of the church. He's writing to Ephesus no point in going over that again go over to chapter 2 verse 8 and if you were here for Michael preaching this you already know the answer to this chapter 2 verse 8 for by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves it is the gift of God the question is what is the gift of God is grace the gift of God is faith the gift of God Is saved the gift of God, or is he referring to all of them in the sense of it's salvation that is the gift of God? The easy answer here is it's salvation, and that's really from the grammar. Gift of God is in the neuter. These others are either masculine or feminine. And if he wanted to associate gift with one of these, he would have made it in the same gender but he made it the neuter to point to all of them. So the answer would be salvation. It's not just grace that is a gift. It's not just faith that is a gift. All of salvation is a gift of God. Okay? Does that make sense? And that fits with Paul's argument there. His whole point in Ephesians 2 is, you were saved and you have no reason to boast. If only grace was the gift of God you could boast about your faith. If only faith was the gift of God, you could boast that God was gracious to you. So when you take his argument, it fits. All right, I finished somehow. Let's, let's pray real quick. Father, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for the ability to come together, to gather, to fellowship, to look at your word. We thank you for the book of Ephesians and all the prison epistles and the faithfulness of Paul. How You gave him the strength to be faithful in the midst of great trials and circumstances. and You gave him the ability to write such letters that teach and instruct us so much of how we are to live and the reason we are to live in a new life. So we thank you so much. We ask that you would be with us in our worship this morning. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.